start telling me about Schofield. Levi Schofield? Yeah. He was born on, he was born in Cleveland, and it's an interesting thing. He grew up on the in, intersection of East 9th and Euclid. They used to call it Erie Street in Euclid. And when his dad built that place there, everybody said he was a bad businessman because he moved all the way out into the swamp at East 9th and Euclid. We're really? talking just a couple of steps from Public Square. Yeah. And eventually that became the most active hub in the city of Cleveland. Ah, huh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. And the first traffic light, which stood on a big pole, and it had this uh, big room in it, and there was a, a, a traffic director guy that would stand in that me. thing and huh? turn the lights on and off. It probably caused more accidents than it, than it yeah. prevented. So but it was yeah. right at that intersection at East 9th and Euclid. Yeah. He, he grew up in a, in a sort of a boarding house slash drugstore slash hotel, and it was called the Euclid Hotel, Euclid Place Hotel. Uh -huh. And he eventually tore it down in 1901 and built the Schofield Building. Oh, yeah. So what's his, what's his connection to Athens? He built the Athens Asylum. He built the Athens Asylum, which at the time he built it, it was the largest building in the state of Ohio. Wow. And he was 26 years old, and it's the first thing he ever did. It's the first project? That was his first project. I didn't know that. And, and since he wasn't, since I can't locate anywhere that he was trained in any kind of college as, a, as an architect, mm -hmm. I'm guessing he got the job because the last, um, his last service in the military was serving under a General Jacob Cox. Huh. That's who he was serving under at the Battle of Franklin. Huh. And Jacob Cox became governor of Ohio in 1867. Oh. And I think Schofield got the job in 1868, yeah. probably because of who he knew. Right, right. Huh, that's fascinating. And so, you couldn't build a building bigger than that in that era because they had, the I-beam hadn't been introduced into right, North America yet. Right. So you can only stack so much masonry up before the weight of it starts to crush the bottom right. foundation block. Yeah, yeah. Theater in Chinese, one of the earliest I-beam, uh, first one in Barry County, Steel I-beam building. That was 1908. Is where? The Tecumseh Theater, oh, the really? Redmond's Hall. Yeah. yeah. The Perry County paper called it, New Lex paper called it a skyscraper. <laughs> and we Those did were some the research. skyscrapers of the era. Yeah. And it was like 1895 when the first one was built in New York well, or Chicago somewhere. In, in uh, Schofield spent all that time in the war, and the war influenced what he did. He built asylums, he built um, two asylums. He built the Soldiers and Sailors Orphans Home in, in Xenia, Ohio, ah. for the orphans of Civil War veterans. Right. He built a prison in Mansfield, a prison in Raleigh, North Carolina, oh. and then he built two Civil War monuments in Ohio. Really? And they they are the two biggest Civil War monuments in Ohio, and they stand on the two most valuable pieces of publicly owned real estate in the state of Ohio. One of them stands on the public square of the Connecticut Western Reserve in downtown Cleveland, in front of the Terminal Tower. The other one's the and the other house. one stands on the State House grounds in Columbus. Yeah, yeah. Oh. And, and uh, he put seven years of his life into the one in Cleveland at no charge and oh. invested $57,000 of his own money in it. Wow. <laughs> that was a lot of money in those days. I forget what I was getting ready to tell you about that monument. Mm. Um, Yeah, and I, I think that you could, I think from the top floor of his building that he built, his skyscraper, he built this interesting um, architectural feature up on the roof. It's called a lantern. It's like a half lemon shape. It's got these 
porthole type windows in it with, with scrolls cut stone between each one of them and these fascies you know what fascies are these these military symbols yeah they're built he's got them surrounding these windows and then above that room there's a little platform with about six or eight columns on it with a little sort of a cap over that and i have to believe that there's a stairway that gets you up to that platform with a trap door so he can get out and stand on that i believe it was eye level with with Liberty, who stood at the top of that monument. Yeah. And I think from up on that platform, he should have been able to see a dozen of his works around yeah. the city of Cleveland. Wow. wow. And was the roofing material, or the, the, was it metal? Copper? It's hard to say. Um, it might be metal. Yeah, yeah. I think it must have, must have yeah. been metal. Because huh. huh. all the rest of it was stone going up to it. Yeah. So is that building still there? The building is still there. The lantern is gone. Gone, huh? Yeah. Huh. And his papers weren't saved. I found a, I found a quote in a book that was written in the 30s, and this woman was writing about the famous old Euclid Avenue of Cleveland, and she right. said she went into the Schofield building, and she was up on the 14th floor, and she said from the window at his office there he could see the pinnacle of his life's work, which was that monument. Uh-huh. And then she said she walked into one of the back rooms, and there on a pile against the wall was a pile of original drawings, papers, and books covered all in dust. And she said, how soon a man's life worked just right. is lost. Yep, yep. <laughs> and unless somebody went in and saved all that from the pile, it's gone. Yeah. Is there any evidence that they did? No, because I've been to the Western Reserve Historical Society. They don't have it. Yeah. Um, they don't have it at the Ohio Historical Society. Yeah. Oh. They did have an interesting group of photos. That's where I got some of these pictures that I was just showing you. And then at the end of his, uh, when he retired, he would go out to Sheffield Lake along the lake shore every summer with the 103rd Division. So here it is, 50 years after the war, and he's still meeting up with all the guys, and they're going, they had bought these cottages, built these cottages out there. And they would meet out there, and, and huh. every year they'd get their photo taken. And there's always a group of about 30 or 40 guys. And huh. if you look through it, you can always find Schofield because he's the guy looking away from the camera. Wow. They're all looking at the camera for the, you know, the, yeah. we're talking 1910 and 1912. And here he is looking off to the, at an angle. Why do you think that is? Every time. I don't know. Yeah. Couldn't tell you. That. And he wrote a book about the Battle of Franklin. Oh. In 1909. Oh. So the war never got away from this guy. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it, it stayed with him his whole life. Right, yeah. Talk about the Battle of Franklin again. The Battle of Franklin came, it's at the end of the war, it's late November. I think it occurred on November 30th. And the night before, John Bell Hood, Confederate General John Bell Hood, managed to position his army between General Schofield who Captain Levi Schofield was serving under him and Jacob Cox and all these other generals. Bell positioned his entire army between Schofield and Nashville where the Union Army was trying to get to. And then they all went to camp and, and there are different things about they, what they say about why Hood wasn't on the job on that. Some people say he was taking too much laudanum because he'd already lost an arm and a leg and he was still controlling the army yeah yeah but anyway general schofield's entire army of 25,000 men 
I don't know how many horses and wagons, a long train of them, yeah. marched right through the Confederate Army within within talking distance of all these guys, and none of the Confederates reported it to the top. Yeah. And so the entire army got through. They got into the town of Franklin, with their back to the Ar- uh, to the Carp Carpet River. And they dug in into trenches and behind a batty, and they were prepared. And when uh, Hood was so upset the next morning when he found out that happened, some people say he sent these guys in as a revenge kind of thing. There's no evidence. It was also thought by him and others that this was the last opportunity for the South to get the upper hand in the war. And so... They threw all these Confederates at the, at the Union Army, and in just an hour and a half before dusk, the Confederate Army just, they, they took a bad hit, a bad beating, and they lost six generals. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. So, does Franklin, Tennessee commemorate this event? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Matter of fact, one of the coolest things I've heard is that in Franklin, Tennessee, a lot of the battlefield got bought up and got turned into pizza huts and everything else. And they are buying Pizza Huts up and tearing them down. Oh, great. They're They're restoring the battlefield. Wow, that's neat. There's a big graveyard there, and there's a a plantation called the Carnton Plantation, which is where they buried all these guys. And, yeah, I think Franklin, Tennessee realizes that it's probably the most significant thing in in their history. Right, right. How big of a town is this? Um, I don't really know. Cyrus has been down there. He yeah. checked it out, but he wasn't aware of the significance of some of this other yeah. stuff. And also, Ambrose Bierce was at that battle, too. Okay. Uh, it makes me want to read what they what they both had to say. Yeah. They both wrote about that battle. So he was a Meigs County, and tell me about him. Oh, you got, you got I got to go. Okay. Uh, Thanks, I got to go teach class. Okay. I'll send this to you. Let's do that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah.